This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 31st, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. As the dust begins to settle following the Brexit vote, where is Great Britain headed with respect to trade and immigration? Daniel Hannan, a member of the European Parliament and vocal supporter of Brexit, talked about the process now underway at the Cato Institute's Cato Club 200 event held earlier this month. If you are in this lonely cause of liberty, you have to be in it for the long term. And you are right to be optimistic about the long term, and sometimes we just can't see it. You think of what the state of political discourse was when the Cato Institute was founded. The ideas that were then considered unthinkable, or conversely, the things that went without saying were unquestionable. And although it's natural to be grumpy and natural for conservatives at any rate to focus on the things that are going badly, the way in which that center of gravity has been inched over the years towards a more freedom-loving position is because of the work of institutes like this one, in it for the long run. Cato Institute is named after two of my countrymen, uh, John Trenchard and Robert Gordon. They wrote Cato's letters in the 1720s, setting out a vision of how a republican system of government would operate if the citizen were elevated above the state, if people in charge were representatives rather than rulers. They couldn't have imagined that a generation after they wrote, those precepts would be turned into a functioning nation, and that that nation would become the greatest republic on earth, attracting hundreds of millions from every continent and archipelago. was staying power. That was what Tucker described as being proved right in the long term. In fact, those two guys, Gordon and Trenchard, were of course looking back at another long-term battler, namely Cato himself, Cato the Elder. The famous thing about Cato the Elder, you all know the story. Every time he spoke in the Roman Senate about any subject, he would end with the phrase, and Carthage must be destroyed. You can imagine that this didn't make him the most popular guy in the Senate. Well, believe me, I know about being unpopular in parliamentary assemblies. I got got to the European Parliament urging the the abolition of the place, which is not a great line with your (laughs) colleagues. um, It's a a tough sell, that one. And, And when we began to get close to the possibility, I, would, I, I consciously modeled myself on Cato the Elder. I would finish every speech, whatever its subject, I could have been talking about Turkish accession, or I could have been talking about, you know, permittable noise levels on, on roads, and I would say, and there has to be a referendum. Of course, that made me even less popular. I was as Ishmael, every man's hand was against me. But you know, Cato, they used to mock him, they used to mimic his voice. Every time he stood up, they would groan. Do you know what? In the end, they did it. And it was the same with our referendum. You just heard from David, it took me 26 years since swearing that terrible oath. But in the end, you can achieve it. You can achieve the most extraordinary things if you have a better song to sing. And that's really the message that I want to share with you tonight about how you win as optimists. Now, it's difficult to begin to describe the imbalance of forces in our recent debate and referendum about leaving the EU. You know, a lot of of commentators, lazy journalists, reached for the cliche of it was David and Goliath. (laughs) 
His name wasn't David and Goliath. I mean, Goliath was a big guy. We know that, right? Six cubits and a span, right? The, the shaft of his spear was as a weaver's beam. He had an helmet of brass, and his mail was of 5,000 shekels weight, right? But he was just one guy. You want a real parallel of what happened on the 23rd of June. You have to imagine that Goliath had said, hey, I don't like these odds. That he'd gone back to Gath. He'd got a gang of 50 or 100 other Philistines, and they'd rushed at the little shepherd boy, and one after another, boom, 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 they'd all gone down with stones in their foreheads. That would have been a little bit more like what actually happened in our referendum. Every broadcaster, every political party, every bank, every big corporation, every trade association, every think tank, every EU-funded university, the whole of the establishment was telling us that it was a matter of national survival to stay in the EU, that it would be calamitous for us if we left. And people didn't believe it. On the 23rd of June, they politely disregarded all the advice, all the bullying, all the hectoring, all the threats, and they voted to become a self-governing country again. Now, to be honest, on that, and it was an appropriately beautiful sunny morning, the, the Friday the 24th, on that gorgeous morning, a lot of people felt shell-shocked. Even a lot of Leave voters felt a little bit stunned by the magnitude of what had happened. You know what that sense of shock was? It was the shock of being back in control again. It was the shock of a convalescent who finally manages to get out of bed and throws open the French windows and strides out into the sunlit garden. It was the shock of a long-term convict so used to being told when to eat, when to sleep, when to exercise, that he's not quite sure how to make a success of taking his decisions at first. But just as, and all of you as good libertarians know this, just as a person in the end will be happier if he's making his own decisions, so it's true of an entire nation. There's a link between being independent of the state and living in an independent state. Among all of the many asymmetries we had, the pro-Remain side called in every world leader who owed them a favor to tell us that it would be calamitous if we left. And at the top of their list was, of course, the leader of our chief ally, your 44th president. And he, 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 he can be a fairly, um, I don't know how to put this, he doesn't brook opposition very easily. He, he, he lets you know when he, when he thinks you ought to be doing something. And he was a little bit finger-wagging. He came over and he said, you know, if, if you do this thing, don't expect us to talk to you as a commercial partner. He said, you'll be at the back of the line for any trade talks that we have after. In fact, he, he translated it into the British idiom. He said, you'll be at the back of the queue if there are any talks. Now, it was an interesting thing. Four opinion polls were published the following week. And every single one showed a big leave, a big swing to the leave position. So, and I think everyone accepts this, even on the Remain side. Barack Obama may have been the guy who pushed us <laughs> over the line. And yeah, not often one gets the chance to say thank you, Barack Obama. But you know, great job on that one. And and and, uh, and apparently, I'm told by by. Diplomats and people who know him that he was in a terrible uh, bait when the news came through because he is not accustomed to being gainsaid and he'd given us the clearest possible instructions as to what he wanted us to do. Now, I should say that, uh, that there was a reason that the Remainers 
use Barack Obama. He's actually, outside this country, he's fairly popular, right? If you don't have to live with his domestic policies, he looks very different. In, in the mind, genuinely, in, most, in the minds of most people outside the US, he is still, you know, the mixed race candidate who opposed the Iraq war. So he's, you know, it, it, it was not an anti-Obama thing. The reason that I think people reacted as they did is that they knew, deep down, that he was urging on us a policy that he and you would never accept in a million years. Suppose that I were to come here as a British politician and say, all right, cousins, here's the plan. We're going to have a supranational organization based on the organization of American states. It will have the power to strike down laws of Congress. There's going to be a pan-American parliament in, I don't know, Havana. Uh, and <laughs> its rulings will have primacy on your soil. And there will be a pan-American Supreme Court in Managua, right? And it, it will be able uh, to rule and overrule your, your own Supreme Court. Let's, while we're about it, let's throw in a pan-American central bank in Buenos Aires, which is going to administer your new currency, the pan-American peso. I'm guessing that most of you would tell me to buzz off. Some of you might use a stronger word than buzz. Any Trump supporters here who are thinking of stronger language yet, keep it to yourselves, because there are, my 14-year-old daughter is present. I can't let her watch your presidential debates. The, 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 the language is too shocking. And here's, so here's really the thing, right? Although popular as he was, people were not going to accept what they knew to be duff advice. In a way, if, if the Americans here, if you want to understand why we voted leave, go back to your Declaration of Independence. I mean, I've given up urging Obama to read the Constitution. I'm setting the bar a bit lower. If he could <laughs> at least start with the Declaration of Independence and look at how those ringing phrases apply to our situation, a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution, preserving our free system of English laws, declaring themselves invested with the power to legislate for us. All of the reasons that, all the grievances that animated your patriot leaders applied equally to us. Or let me put it even more simply. You guys voted leave in 1776. And from where I'm standing, it seems to have worked out okay for you. <laughs> We're now going to be once again an independent country. And here is the, the sort of, let me, let me give you, if I, if I may, two lessons about this. The first is, people are almost always wiser than their experts. I realize it can be a lonely and difficult course to be charting if you're in the liberty movement here, you're backing organizations like this. Because it does feel you sometimes have the same lineup that we had in that referendum, right? With all the broadcasters and all the clever clogs against you, all the university deans and so on. But don't underestimate the basic instinctive intelligence of most people. They can smell a racket. They know when people are using basically self-interested arguments. And they know when the so-called experts are in fact acting out of what the French call professionnel, uh, déformation professionnelle, out of, out of uh, institutional self-interest. So let's just look at what's happened since our vote. Right? We were told by every economist, by every bank, by every politician, that if we voted leave, our stock exchange would collapse. In reality, the stock exchange collapse has happened in the Eurozone. British stocks are the best performing in Europe. We were told that unemployment would go through the ceiling. 
In fact, unemployment has fallen every month since the vote and is currently at its lowest ever level. We were told, I just heard what I said about the president saying you'll be at the back of the queue for any trade talks. He's conspicuously failed to repeat that line since. And the Speaker of Congress has quite rightly said, we're going to have a trade deal with the UK long before we have one with the EU. Unarguable. We were told that a great moment when the, the, the German finance minister came over and said, if you vote leave, you'll be treated as any third country and we won't have any uh, special arrangements with you. He now says, oh, no, 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 Britain's our biggest customer. Of course, we're going to have to have a, a good deal. <laughs> and a, a German journalist said to him, but, but Herr Minister, you actually used the phrase out means out in English. You, you, said, you said that they'd be treated like, uh, you know, Japan or... Yeah, the British government told me to say that. I mean, this is, this is the extent to which the experts were wrong and the people were right. And so if you want to understand what happened in our referendum, and if I, if I can give you one bit of enduring conservative wisdom to sustain you through what I suspect is going to be a difficult four years uh, ahead, regardless of what happens uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I go back to something that Edmund Burke, the godfather of conservatism, wrote in 1791, observing the French Revolution. He said, because half a dozen grasshoppers concealed beneath the fern make the field ring with their importunate chink, whilst thousands of great cattle take their repose in the shade of the British oak and chew the cud in silence. Pray do not imagine that those who make all the noise are the only inhabitants of the field. What we saw on the 23rd of June was how much more numerous and how much wiser the cattle were than the crickets. Now, of course, the grasshoppers are still chirruping away, right? They're still prophesying doom and gloom. They're still telling us that everything is going to go wrong. The old Remain campaign is sending out these tweets like a defeated resistance movement in some occupied capital saying, oh, there's a recession coming. But the people knew better. And they will know better here. Which brings me on to a very specific thing. If I get, do you mind if I uh, presume on the kinship of our two countries and Obama-like uh, give some advice in return, or just make one observation in return, and it's this. There are an awful lot of elections happening in this country other than the only one that foreigners are focused on. I think your founders knew what they were doing when they put Congress in Article I of the Constitution and the presidency in Article II. Right? It's your Congress that sets the budget, right? And the vital role of a Congress at a time like this is to restore order and sanity to public finance. I find it incredible that anyone is talking about anything other than the fact that the federal government now owes nearly $20 trillion. I mean, you know, interesting as the peccadilloes and proclivities and emails of the two presidential candidates are, why is anyone interested in anything else? You know what? It's extraordinary how people become habituated to things. That something that was shocking to us five years ago has now just become a bit of background furniture. But guys, a debt on this scale is not just your problem, right? It's the whole world's problem. And the thing is that your founders wrote a mechanism into the Constitution for self-correction, and that mechanism is you. It's the people acting through their elected representatives, reminding the people in charge that they're representatives and not rulers, and reminding them that they take an oath of office and that if they mean it, 
if they mean what they say about upholding the Constitution, then that has implications in terms of devolving power and spending. And so please, don't forget these other rather vital elections, whatever happens. But let me make a second point, and this one is something that arises directly from Brexit, and it's about the opportunities that we now have. You know, I know that a lot of media here, as overseas, saw the Brexit vote as being primarily nativist or nostalgic, actuated by fear of foreigners or dislike of immigration. If that had really been our campaign, we would have struggled to get into double figures. If the, if the Leave campaign had really been the way that the Remain side portrays it, we'd have got nowhere. The truth is, we fought an upbeat and optimistic and cheerful campaign based on the idea that ours is a great country that can do better. This was really not the equivalent of voting for Trump and protectionism. As far as I can make out, a big part of his shtick is that he doesn't want a trade deal with China. A huge part of our referendum is that we do want a free trade deal with China, that the EU won't let us have one because the EU controls all of our trade policy. And our promise throughout was that outside the EU, we would be a more deregulated, lower tax, more global country, a self-governing entrepot, trading with friends and allies on every continent, including Europe, while living under our own laws. Now, we now have the opportunity, for the first time in 43 years, to make our own trade deals again. And this opens up opportunities, let me suggest, for you and for every other free market organization in the world. We can be the first big economy that opens up right across the board, including in agriculture, textiles, all of the difficult areas that people don't normally like to trade about, to talk about. And if we do that, we have the capacity to raise living standards for the most deprived and most wretched people on the planet. At no cost to ourselves at all, on the contrary, at huge benefit to ourselves. It's amazing how we've slipped back. You know, you were hearing earlier about the, uh, the great progress being made, how this is the best time to be a human being. And it's absolutely true, right? One of the things that I read every day, and it cheers me up, no end, is the human progress, uh, regular tweets and emails organized by, by the Cato Institute. You can't not feel happy looking at those statistics. And you measure it in any way, literacy, longevity, infant mortality, calorie intake, height, there has never been a better time to be human. 90% of girls now complete primary education. A stationary car in 1970 emitted more pollution than a car moving at full speed today, right? You can, you can measure it in almost any way. And what's made that happen? The free exchange of goods. Now, go back to Trenchard and Gordon. In their, in their time, it went without saying that if you were a radical, if you believed in meritocracy, if you believed in freedom, then of course you believed in free trade. I wonder what they would think if they could be transported from the 1720s into our present age. I mean, the first thing is they would say, we were right. Free trade has lifted the human race to a pinnacle of wealth and happiness that in our generation could not have been imagined. And they'd say, wow, where are your monuments? You know, you must revere the market now with an almost religious awe. And you'd clear your throats with some embarrassment and you'd tell them about the recent presidential debates. 
and you'd talk about the anti-TTIP crowds and the Occupy people. And I think the thing that would astonish them most, Trenchard and Gordon, is the idea that these young, idealistic people, who in their age would have been the radicals, pushing for freedom and meritocracy and against the power of the crown and against the entrenched privileges of the church and the aristocracy, that those people have somehow got it into their heads that free trade is oligarchic. That all those idealistic young people at the Occupy movements think that somehow unhindered commerce is against the little guy and in favor of the vested interest in the big corporations. When of course, as we know, it's exactly the other way around. No one is cheering those Occupy crowds on more than the biggest corporations that have learned how to use the regulatory system to raise barriers to entry. So we need to recapture the moral fervor of those earlier exponents of freedom. My countryman Richard Cobden said, free trade is God's diplomacy. Nothing else brings people together who don't like each other as much as having customers in each other's countries. And Milton Friedman said, the market is an unparalleled mechanism to get people who don't get on to do business with each other. And he said that before Twitter, which I think has overtaken it as a way of getting people who don't get on uh, to do business with each other. But the point is basically true. Right? As Frederick Bastiat said, if goods don't cross frontiers, soldiers will. That's, it seems to me, the cause we need to be made, the argument we need to be making, the, the ethical case for free trade as the ultimate instrument of poverty alleviation, of conflict resolution and of social justice. And one part of that is using Brexit to be part of a wider nexus of open markets and unhindered competition. And I would very much like us to be working with the United States, whether it's through a bilateral free trade agreement or whether it's through some tie-up between us and NAFTA or whatever. I'm happy to look at, at any of the details. But I do want us to be standing together once again in this cause of spreading liberty to other continents. You know, our, our fathers have stood together many times before against tyranny in much more testing circumstances than these. We were uh, called on, first of all, to defeat the evil of Nazism, then to liberate hundreds of millions of people from the evils of communism. And we stood together and we achieved it collectively. Well, by that standard, this is a relatively easy, but nonetheless vital cause to bring the blessings of free markets and free exchange to bits of the world that don't know it. My friends, this is the greatest republic on earth. It turned a dream of freedom into a functioning nation. And then it placed the flag of that nation on the moon. It's always, in the end, up to you to set the lead. But know that in that cause, you don't lack for friends. Thank you very much. God bless you. God bless America. Daniel Hannan is a member of the European Parliament and a strong supporter of the Brexit referendum. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.